Church, it's so good to be with you today. Again, it's a great privilege and it's a humbling thing to bring God's word to you today. Last week, we jumped back into our study in the Gospel of Matthew. What's happening in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is just a few days away from being crucified. He's just a few days away from being crucified. And in Matthew chapter 23, he's giving his last public sermon. His last public sermon. There's a weightiness. There's a significance, isn't there, to a person's last words. This is Jesus' last sermon before he goes to the cross. What do you think he spoke about? What do you think was close to his heart? What do you think he was concerned about for his people as the cross was imminently near? Well, hypocrisy is what Jesus talked about. Jesus warned the people against and declared judgment upon hypocrisy, particularly and specifically against the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you remember back in Jesus's first sermon, right? Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, this is, ex- this is the same thing that he talked about. And so in his first sermon, and then in his last sermon, and all throughout his preaching ministry, Jesus was warning against hypocrisy. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were supposed to be, as Paul said in Romans chapter 2, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. They were supposed to lead out in knowing God's word, in obeying God's word, in pointing people to the heart of God's word. But instead, we saw last week that they were play acting. Jesus called them hypocrites, which is a Greek word that was used to describe actors on a stage, actors in Ancient Greek theater wore large masks to mark which character they were playing. The mask on the outside communicated one story, right? But underneath the mask was an entirely different reality. And Jesus is saying, this is what the religious leaders were doing. They were preaching one thing, but doing another thing. They were acting like they're trying to please God, but really they were just trying to please man. They were acting like they're trying to help you, but they tied up heavy burdens, burdens that they refuse to lift even with a finger. A hypocrite is someone that tries to look humble before God, but is really about exalting themselves. At the heart of the hypocrite is pride. A hypocrite is someone who acts one way on the outside, but on the inside is entirely different. Now, some of you may may be thinking right now, oh man, I really wish so-and-so was here today to hear this message. I know somebody that really needs to hear this message, right? It's really easy to hear a message about something like hypocrisy and think how applicable it would be for somebody else, right? But let's not be so quick to excuse ourselves. First of all, if you're here and you're a pastor, you're an elder. So I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to all of our elders, all of our congregation pastors. If you're a deacon, really to anyone and everyone that God has called to lead in some capacity here at our church, we have to understand that this message is primarily to us. 
primarily to us. The message today is primarily to those of us who would look to all of our religious activities, all the reading of the Bible, all the praying, giving, serving the church, and then so excuse ourselves, and then so consider ourselves exempt, and to think, surely not me, right? Surely not me, Jesus. Look at all the stuff that I'm doing for you. The people who are most prone to hypocrisy within God's church are the people who are most prone to think, surely not me. Charles Spurgeon once said, he who is true will sometimes suspect himself of falsehood. He who is true will sometimes suspect himself of falsehood, while he who is false will wrap himself up in a constant confidence of his own sincerity. So by God's grace today, let's do the work of suspecting ourselves. Let's do the work of suspecting ourselves. And let's do this together by asking, what are the ways... What are the practices of someone who is a hypocrite? If I'm asking, is it me, Lord? Are you talking about me, Jesus? How can I know if I have full-grown hypocrisy in my heart or even the seed of it that has begun to take root? How can we know? Well, Jesus in Matthew 23 gives us at least seven different ways. Seven different ways that we can know. At least seven times Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I know seven is a lot, but Jesus took the time. He thought it important enough to show us all these different ways that we can know whether there's hypocrisy growing in our hearts. So let's take the time to go through these quickly, but carefully together. Let's look at the first one. Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So the first thing we see is that hypocrites oppose the kingdom of God. And Jesus is starting out with a shocking statement here. It's shocking because he's saying that if hypocrisy has truly gotten a hold of your heart, if it's full-blown in your life like it was for these scribes and Pharisees, it means that you're not really saved. Look at verse 13. For you neither enter yourselves, Jesus says. These are people who are not saved. These are people who have not entered into God's kingdom. And you may be asking, well, what's so shocking about that? Pharisees are bad people. Of course, they're not saved. This may not be shocking for us, but it, but it was absolutely shocking for Jesus' original audience because the Pharisees were known for their righteousness. When it came to studying God's word, when it came to praying, when it came to fasting, when it came to giving, when it came to attending church and serving within the church, nobody did it like these guys. There was a saying, if two people went to heaven, that one of them was surely a Pharisee. But Jesus is saying, look, all these guys that you think are unquestionably saved are not saved at all. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, not only do, your, do you yourself not enter my kingdom, but you keep others from entering. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, he says. You don't allow those who would enter 
to go in, he says. This is a gut-wrenching word picture that Jesus is painting here of people heading towards the kingdom. They're about to enter. They would enter otherwise, but hypocrites come along and shut the kingdom in their faces. How are they doing this? In two ways. They do this by presenting such an exalted picture of their own righteousness that people think, oh, I could never be as good as them, right? Or the people see through the facade, the people see through the veneer of righteousness and think, oh, they're just a bunch of two-faced fakers. I would never want to be a part of that. I would never want to be as bad as them, right? So they're living in such a way that people conclude, I could never be as good as them. If that's what, it, that's what it's required to enter into the kingdom of heaven, I could never do that. Or they look at their lives and come to the conclusion, oh, they're faking it. I would never want to be as bad as them. The second thing that Jesus says is that hypocrites are hardworking. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much of a child of hell as yourselves. Because we saw last week that hypocrites tie heavy burdens on people but refuse themselves to lift a finger, we're tempted to think that hypocrites are lazy, that hypocrites don't really do anything. But that's not true. Hypocrites are very hardworking. They're very dedicated. Jesus said, you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Think about the dedication that would be required to do that. So hypocrites are going to every tongue, tribe, and nation too. Hypocrites are goers, right? So what was the problem with that? The problem was that they were evangelizing with a false gospel, a false gospel that said, you too, you too can be good like me. Hypocrites are hard, are hard at work preaching a false gospel of righteousness through earning, salvation through meriting, doing so many good things to put God in your debt so that he would do what you would want, so that he would save. The first two woes, when you kind of put it together, is showing us that there's a way to do all these religious things. There's a way to read the Bible. There's a way to pray and give and go to the nations even, all the while still being a hypocrite. There's no amount of outward obedience that I could produce, that I could point to and say, therefore, I must not be a hypocrite. I still may be. Let's look at the next one. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And the third woe, Jesus is giving an example of how the hypocrites would make these subtle distinctions. 
make subtle distinctions to determine whether something is truly binding or not. A Pharisee would say something like, I swear, I make an oath on the temple of God. I promise on the altar of God that I will dot, 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 right? But then they wouldn't keep their promise. They wouldn't keep their word. And when they were called on it, they would say, oh, but I didn't swear on the gold of the temple, only on the temple. They would say, I only swore on the altar, not on the gift of the altar. They would make these subtle distinctions and qualifiers to get themselves out of a commitment, out of some oath. And again, we're tempted to look at this and immediately think, oh, how stupid, right? How foolish, how dumb is that? But to point to subtle distinctions, to make subtle qualifiers, isn't that what we do sometimes to get ourselves out of some responsibility or commitment? Actually, what I said was, I know I said that, but what I meant was, yes, I meant that, but the unforeseen thing was, right? Can we even begin to count the number of times that we told somebody we would do something but then didn't? It's shameful to think about all the times that I failed at keeping my word, all the times that I told Angela, all the times that I told my kids I would do something but then didn't, all the times that I told my friends, all the times I've told my coworkers something but I didn't follow through, all the times that I've said I'll pray for you about that as a pastor and then forgot. And I don't even want to try to remember all the times that I've told God I would do something, right? God, I promise that I will. God, I promise that I'll never. And so how do we deal with the shame and guilt of it all, right? We make subtle distinctions. We point to subtle qualifications and say, well, whatever. What had happened was, right? Sometimes it's important to clear up what you really said, what you really meant. And unforeseen things do happen. The problem is when we become such experts at doing it that no one can ever just take us at our word, that no one can just believe you, that your yes means yes, that your no means no. Truth and telling the truth ought to matter for God's people because Jesus said, I am the truth. If we're ever going to be a people that rightly point people to Jesus, we have to be a people who are known to just plainly tell the truth. That our yes means yes. That our no means no. We have to be known for our truth telling. Let's look at the fourth woe, verse 23. Woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The fourth thing that the hypocrites do is that hypocrites compartmentalize their lives. Hypocrites may be hyper-vigilant in obeying God's word in small compartments of their lives while completely neglecting obedience in larger and more significant areas of their lives. Jesus points to their tithing. A tithe means a tenth. 
God gave his people the command to tithe, to give a tenth of everything that God gave them back to God as an act of worship so that it would serve as a reminder that God, everything that I have, everything I have ever received, it comes from you, right? And so these religious leaders were keeping this command. They weren't disobeying this command. They were keeping this command by tithing even mint and dill and cumin that would grow in their gardens. They would pluck off 10 leaves of mint and put one of them in the offering plate. They were being hyper-vigilant to obey God's command. So what's wrong with that? Well, nothing in and of itself. Jesus says, these you ought to have done. Jesus is saying, you should be obeying like that. But here was the problem. You're being super careful and vigilant in seeking obedience in one little compartment of your life while absolutely neglecting obedience in weightier areas of life, in the areas of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus says it's like being so careful to strain out even a gnat from your drink, but then you're swallowing a camel. So this is the temptation sometimes, to take one little area of our lives and be super vigilant, to obey, 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 uncompromisingly obey, so that we could look to one little area of our lives, so that we could point to one little area of our lives and think, oh, I must be living in obedience. Oh, I must not be struggling in sin. Look over here, without looking at the larger portion, without looking at the weightier sections of our lives. So maybe you have a perfect tithing record. You may be giving your money to God, but have you given your entire heart over to him? You may be giving God some of your things, but have you given your very self over to him? Maybe you don't ever miss a quiet time, but are you forgiving people? Are you loving people? Maybe you've never committed adultery, not even in your heart but are you loving and sacrificially serving your spouse and strengthening their faith in Jesus? Hypocrites are careful to do the first, but they neglect the latter. Hypocrites are careful to do the smaller thing, but they neglect the weightier thing. Jesus says you should do the first. Keep doing it without neglecting the weightier things. Let's look at the fifth and sixth woes together because they illustrate the same point. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So with the fifth and sixth woes, Jesus is saying that hypocrites care about their outward appearance of holiness. Look at verse 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous. He doesn't say they are righteous. He says they seek to appear righteous, right? More than their inward actual righteousness, more than their inward actual holiness, they care for the appearance of it. 
That though their outside looks beautiful and, and righteous, their inside has the stench of death and hypocrisy. In 1 Samuel 16, God said that he doesn't see as man sees. That man looks on the outside, but that the Lord looks on the heart, the reality of the heart. He's not fooled by appearances. So what Jesus is revealing here is that hypocrites don't care about what God sees. They only care about what man can see. Jesus said they practice their righteousness to be seen, to be seen by men, to please people rather than God. So for instance, on the outside, you may appear very patient, very self-controlled. But on the inside, you're saying, I'm better than you. Look at all of you getting out of control, acting like children. I'm in complete control. I'm so much better than you. On the outside, you may appear very kind, very helpful, very encouraging. But on the inside, you're trying to manipulate. You're trying to control. You're trying to take advantage through your kindness. But don't you see, God sees your inside. Now, Jesus isn't saying that the outside doesn't matter, that only the inside really counts. He's not saying it doesn't really matter what you do as long as you have a good heart. Outward obedience and external ways of measuring obedience matter. They matter. If a person says, for instance, I'm a really generous person, right? In my heart, I have an incredible heart of generosity, right? Well, how can you know if that's true? you would look at their outside, right? And if you see that they've never, ever given to anybody, you know that their claim isn't true. Someone once said that a man's outward conduct is generally a little better than his heart. That a man's outward conduct is generally a little better than his heart. In other words, if you rarely forgive on the outside, we can be sure that you're even a less forgiving person on the inside. So it's impossible for you to be really generous, really forgiving person on the inside if you've never given to anybody or forgiven anybody on the outside. I think we could all understand that. But here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that there is a way that we can give. There is a way, there's a sense in which we can forgive people on the outside, but on the inside still not be generous or forgiving. There's a way that we can master doing good things on the outside, but do it all from an inside that's motivated by greed and pride and the desire to please man rather than God. That the inside, it contaminates our outside. No matter how good, no matter how beautiful it may appear before people. What Jesus is saying is that he wants a changed heart, not just changed behaviors. He wants our inside and our outside to match. He wants our obedience to be lived out in private just as much as it is in public. Because in the privacy of your own home, in the privacy of your own room, in the privacy of your own thoughts, what you do there when only God can see, when only God can see, is the only real place where we can truly know whether we're practicing righteousness to be seen by men or to be seen by God, whether we're obeying because we want to look good in front of people, to please people, 
or to please God. Let's look at the last woe. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? What's Jesus' indictment here? These religious leaders are building monuments for the prophets that their fathers killed, saying to themselves, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So the last thing that Jesus reveals about hypocrisy is that hypocrites are in the practice of saying, oh, I would never. Hypocrites are in the practice of saying, oh, I could never. Hypocrites are in the practice of saying, I can't believe how anybody would do something like that. Hypocrites judge and judge strictly others for the same sins that they themselves commit. As Paul would say in Romans 2, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Because while saying, if we were there, we would have never taken part in shedding the blood of the righteous. What were they doing right in that moment? They were plotting to crucify Jesus, the true and only righteous one. While saying, I can't believe our fathers killed God's prophets. What were they doing? They're about to kill God's very son. What are the things that people do that make you most angry? What are the things that you're most prone to judge and to judge strictly? We need to stop in those moments and ask ourselves, do I do the same thing? It might be expressed different, but at the heart of it, do I do the same thing? Are we prone to see other people's sins as planks while seeing our own sins as specks? What sins do we most harshly judge? Other people's sins or our own sins? Do we find ourselves regularly saying, oh, I would never. Oh, I could never. Oh, I can't believe that they would. Let's suspect ourselves. This is part of your regular vocabulary. I would never, I could never, I can't believe that they would, right? Jesus is saying these are the signs of a hypocrite. The truth is we would, we could, and we do. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. And now at the end of these seven woes, as we did the work of suspecting ourselves and asking, is it me, Lord? Are any of us thinking, great, no hypocrisy here? Anybody? Not me. 
I think if we're honest, we'll see that there's at least seeds of hypocrisy in our hearts beginning to take root. Or there's the tendency and the temptation towards more hypocrisy. Or perhaps even the guilt of grievous hypocrisy that is full-blown in our hearts. So what's the hope for hypocrites? What's the hope for hypocrites like us? At first glance, it doesn't look hopeful at all. Seven times, Jesus pronounced woes against the hypocrite. The word woe is the Greek word ue. Ue. It doesn't even sound like a word. It's just kind of a guttural cry. It's a word that means horror. It's a word that means disaster. But at the same time, it's a word mingled with grief and sorrow. It's a word that brings together punishment and pity, cursing and compassion. And Jesus is saying it over and over again, ue to you, ue to you. When Jesus pronounces a woe, it's what someone once called divine fiat. It's as good as done. It's not a wish that may or may not happen. Jesus is saying, horror, disaster will come. It will come. It's going to come. And it will be grievously sad. And so we brace ourselves as Jesus starts speaking again in verse 34. Therefore, I send you, he says. Therefore, I send you. Jesus says, therefore, I send you. What do you think he's going to say? Therefore, I'm going to send you wrath and famine, right? Therefore, I'm going to send you judgment and destruction, right? But look at what he says. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogue and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus is saying, therefore, in light of your hypocrisy, in light of all the woes, Jesus says, therefore, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm going to continue to send preachers of God's word, wise teachers of God's heart to you. What he's saying is that you may have made a final determination to reject me, but I have not yet finally rejected you. Jesus is saying, I'm not done with you. He's giving a statement of clear judgment that is intermingled with mercy. Clear judgment intermingled with hope. Now listen carefully. Jesus isn't a beggar. He's not saying, oh, you've rejected me over and over and over again, but I'm just going to keep trying. No, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He says that I'm going to keep sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, knowing that you're going to crucify and kill, knowing that you're going to flog and persecute, knowing that you're going to continue to reject. So why is he doing it? 
if they're going to continue to reject them. He says in verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. If you look at the Hebrew Old Testament, Abel was the first righteous person to be killed and Zechariah was the last. He's saying upon you will come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the beginning of your history to your last. Jesus is saying, the nature of your hypocrisy is such that. The nature of your lying and seeking men's praise is such that. The nature of you judging others and shedding the kingdom in people's faces is such that. The blood of bulls and goats, which you, which you ritually offer and sacrifice, can't cover you. And even if all the righteous blood shed from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah would come upon you, it couldn't cover you. In fact, it would only serve to multiply your condemnation because of your continued rejection of it. So what's the hope for the hypocrite? The hope is that there is a blood. The hope is that there is a blood that can cover even hypocrites like us. Our hope is that there is a blood that can interject and intervene and transform even the hardest of hearts that's desperately trying to reject and run from God. Hebrews 12, 24 tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Church, can there truly be hope for hypocrites like us? Church, can there truly be hope for people like us? Yes. Yes. Because there was once a man named Saul. And he was known as the Pharisee of Pharisees, which means that out of all the Pharisees that Jesus pronounced his woe upon, Saul was the worst one. But one day on the road to Damascus, as Saul was on his way to kill Christians, a man named Saul met a man named Jesus, and that changed everything. The resurrected Christ interjected himself into Saul's life. The resurrected Christ intervened as Saul was headed straight into the full fury of God's woe. Church, our God will not be mocked. The woe is coming. The woe is rightly deserved and the woe will be poured out on all hypocrisy, on all sin. Our God of justice can't just say, oh, it's okay, I'll just let it go. The woe is divine fiat. It must be poured out. So what's our hope? Our hope is that Jesus, with his shed blood in our place at the cross, received our woes for us. That's our only hope. Our only hope is found in the resurrected Christ intervening and confronting and getting in our way like he did for Saul. Church, all the blood of the righteous, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, could not cover our sins. But there is a blood that can cover. There is a blood that can cover even a people like us. And so let's pray that he would confront us and knock us down and blind us if that's what it's going to take so that we might say along with Paul in 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, 
as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is saying, there's a saying. There's a saying and it's trustworthy. Deserving a full acceptance. What saying is that? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It was just happening all the time. It wasn't the righteous or the religious that were being saved. Sinners were being saved just all the time. And so it became a saying, Christ Jesus, why did he come? He came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like me, whom I am the foremost. But I received the mercy. But he gave mercy. Why? So that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ, might show, might put on display his perfect patience so that in me, the foremost, all those who would believe in him for their salvation might see the riches of his grace. So if you're here today and you're wondering, if you're questioning, if you're doubting, can he cover this? Can he save me even? Can he transform this? What Paul is saying is yes. What Paul is saying is if he can save me, he can save anybody. What Paul is saying is if he could change this hypocrisy and transform me, if he can transform my heart, he can transform your heart. Paul is inviting you to see, look at his perfect patience. Look at his perfect patience. Look at this great mercy poured upon me, the worst, the worst. There is hope. There is hope for people like me and you. And so he breaks out in worship. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's not the end, right? This is not a benediction. When he contemplates the perfect patience of Jesus, when he contemplates the mercy of Jesus poured upon him, he just breaks out into worship says, oh, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. So, Father, we ask that you would continue to do the work of searching us and knowing us Father, if still even now we are putting our guards up, we're fighting up against being truly known by you, Lord, will you knock us down? Will you intervene? Will you interject? Will you confront us just like you did for Saul and display to us this great, perfect patience of our Lord Jesus who has come into this world to save sinners. Father, you are a God who saves. You are a God who saves, Lord. Father, let us be at work in this world, in this city, not to shut the kingdom of God in people's faces, 
but to usher them in so that they too might know this great mercy, this great hope, this great mercy that we have received. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.